Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number eight of the Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, welcome to the show. How are you doing? How's your week going? I hope you're feeling good. I've just arrived in London Heathrow, so I'm having to speak a little bit quietly because I'm recording this from one of the the lounges in the airport. I just arrived here from Phoenix, Arizona this morning, and I've just spent the last four days in Sedona, Arizona, which is about two hours north of Phoenix. A beautiful, beautiful town. It's uh, regarded as an energy center, and it's a very big spiritual community in Arizona, and a stunning stunning location they just have these huge red cliffs that you just you don't see anywhere else imagine the grand canyon then that's surrounded by beautiful green forest and then it snowed the time i was there so the the red cliffs all had snow on top of them so it was just the most stunning stunning location a few months ago i was invited to join a group of the top 30 coaches in the world This is a very elite group of coaches that are the best in their field that meet four times a year in random locations all around the world. And it's a place where coaches can have a community of other coaches. One thing I'm very, very passionate about and I think a lot of us are missing in our lives these days is a really strong community. And for me, uh, being invited into this group was an absolute honor because that gives me a community of incredible, incredible coaches to surround myself with. Uh, the purpose of this group is for coaches to uh, think big, to create amazing visions and have all these other coaches around you to support you and use their networks to grow your mission and grow your vision and help support you to achieve that. And it's also a place where coaches go to do their own deep inner work, where uh, coaches can be coached in, in a really safe environment. And I was incredibly intimidated, which was uh, interesting. I was by far the least qualified in the room, but the leader of the group, he said, look, if you're in a room full of people and you don't feel intimidated, you're not in the right room. So I took that as a good clue that I was in the right place. Uh, I'm in London because I'm now en route to Monrovia in Liberia. I'm going to spend the next 10 days in Liberia uh, coaching a bunch of people, entrepreneurs, business people, teachers, and uh, trying to help Liberia and help that country with uh, some support that it desperately needs. So I'm excited about that trip and I'll report back on that next week from Liberia. I'm so excited to have Daniel Thomas of Evolution Eat on the show this week. Daniel is a high performance coach that focuses on nutrition and lifestyle. And Daniel takes a different approach to it. He is not interested in yo-yo diets or the latest fad diet or losing 30 pounds in 30 days. He really focuses on your relationship with food and how you can change that relationship and take a long-term approach so you can be healthy for the rest of your life. I have some personal insight on this. Uh, Daniel is my food and uh, nutrition coach, so I know how amazing he is and how much he he has to teach. And in this call, Daniel's going to give you all his secrets about uh, food nutrition, lifestyle, healthy ways to go about it. You're going to hear a lot about my journey and some personal stuff that I think you might get something out of. Uh, Daniel is an incredibly energetic, fun guy, and I think you're going to love this conversation. Uh, we join the conversation when Daniel tells me what it was like growing up in Queens, New York. He's the son of a, an Italian mother that fed him nonstop when he was a kid. Uh, so without further ado, enjoy this personal conversation with the powerful Daniel Thomas. Brooklyn and Queens are two boroughs of New York City that are attached to this island called Long Island. And it's not body of land. The landmass itself is not physically connected to 
the state of New York. There's a bridge that connects Long Island to New York, and Long Island is primarily comprised of um, a collection of suburbs, and I'm from one of the suburbs. I grew up in the suburbs, um, a very boring, typical uh, <laughs> childhood. And then I, what characterized my childhood and early teens was getting into this very difficult, prestigious school, high school called Regis High School, which, um, which really changed the trajectory of my life for good and bad. Uh, at the time, it was incredibly difficult, and I had, to, I had to travel an hour and a half from my home in Long Island to Manhattan every day where I went to school back and forth an hour and a half. So three hours total. It was a, it was a lot, but it was an all scholarship and um, just an incredible opportunity for me. And uh, then I went to, I, I moved to Washington, DC, the nation's capital for college, did that for four years and then back to Manhattan, New York city for three, um, three years before I moved to Los Angeles, which I, where I have been for three years now so how did the just go back a few steps so you go into this prestigious high school what what was the i went to a private school as well so i'm interested in your mm-hmm. experience here um how did you end up going there was it your parents were pushing you to get into that kind of school is it somewhere you wanted to go no so actually it's a i have i've had a best friend his name is andrew my entire life since we were literally two years old there's a picture of us in the sandbox That's and cool. we went to this yeah, we went to the same, what they call nursery school here, which is like a, one grade above babies <laughs> nursery <laughs> school. Um, we went to the same grade school, which is kindergarten through first grade through eighth grade. Uh, we went to the same, the same grade school. And then we were both planning on going to this. Uh, I grew up Roman Catholic, and that's we went to a Catholic school, and we were both planning to go to the next level up, which was the the high school. That's that that was a congregation of many different towns, and it was a good school. We were just planning on going there, but then my friend Andrew learned about Regis and went into the city, went to an open house, and decided that he was going to try to get in, and he convinced me to try to get in. Um, and it was a long series of tests and interviews. It was harder to get into Regis than it was Georgetown, which is where I went to college. And that's like known to be a good school. And it was harder to get into Regis as a 14 year old. And I ended up getting in and Andrew did not. So, wow. I, so I was given a difficult, do I leave my best friend and pretty much everything that I was anticipating myself to do. I had never even considered Regis. I didn't really know much about it. Somebody told me I should apply once because I was a precocious little kid and um, probably a bit of a smart ass. Well, definitely a smart ass. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I just, I, long and short, I decided to go. It wasn't anybody putting pressure on me other than myself, which is that I recognized it was a, it was an honor. It's, it's, it's known throughout the city and the tri-state area of New York uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, as a as a, one of the best schools, and I figured, well, hell, if I got in, I might as well see what's up with it, <laughs> and and um, it was it exposed me to everything. I I just got by. I was I was smart, you know, I was smart growing up, and I things came to me. I studied really hard, which my mom drilled into me. My mother is a highly 
this Italian woman and she drilled into me the ethic of working hard, studying hard and treating school like a career from a very young age. And um, I took that concept and ran with it in high school. And the good was that I was exposed to a world of thinking and you know, and literature that I had never been before. And I really fell in love with literature, all the classics. My favorites were the Russians, <laughs> um, like Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, uh, Gogol, and then the modernists like Joyce, Wolf, um, on the American side, Hemingway, Fitzgerald. So I was exposed to all of that and, and writing, which was has always been my passion, writing. And I took it very seriously, and it was trained in me to take it very seriously. I took it one level deeper and became um, obsessed with the idea of being like a student and being a perfectionist. And because I felt like I had to, I had all this pressure of performing well, and I was surrounded by some of the most brilliant people I've still met to this date. As a high school kid, I was just—it was a community of incredibly gifted. Kids and I had to work really hard just to like keep my head above water. And you know, some of these kids are like literally geniuses, and um, and I felt like I had to compete, and I had really, really was really just competing with myself. And I lost the joy out of the learning um, at a certain point, and I treated the whole process so seriously that I really lost touch with myself, and I lost touch with why I was studying so hard, and that 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 question of why plagued me for years after high school into college and then after college, meaning why am I doing all this and what is it for? What what do I actually want to do? Why am I working so hard? Like I never answered that question. It was only it was always just to satisfy the desire to achieve and achieve at a high level and 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 you know it feels nice to be called really smart at a young age and for everybody to recognize you as this kid who's going who's really smart who goes to this really good school like that was kind of that was the identity that i wanted to preserve but i never went a layer deeper and said well why do i care about this and what am i trying to either contribute or what do i want to actually do what does success mean to me and i never answered that and that became an excruciatingly uncomfortable um you know, six or seven years later when I graduated from college. So many questions. <laughs> uh, growing up Roman Catholic and going to a Roman Catholic school, what characterizes that, if anything? <clears throat> well, the the basics is that I was given all the sacraments and all that. I went to I went to church every Sunday up until I was about. Mm, maybe eight years old with my, with my mother. And I think my father was a good sport about it. My father was a Protestant. My mother is Roman Catholic. Her father, oh, wow. and it's an Italian man, uh, second generation American. His father had, had come over, uh, in the early 1900s. So he's very, very, very religious. Not, not, not dogmatic in any ways, but he just grew up religious. And so my mom was used to the tradition of it and she wanted to instill that in me. And I went to a Catholic school because it was more contained. And I think that my mom was more about the, um, like the smaller size of the school versus, uh, the larger public school where, you know, I could be influenced by this, that or whatever. So it didn't mean much. I didn't identify much with Catholicism or being Catholic other than the fact that I was exposed to it from a, a philosophical point of view at a, at a young age. 
I was just I just grew accustomed to it. By the time I was in high school, I cynically rejected all of it um, and kind of, and considered myself and still do in many ways an agnostic. But through a number of experiences in the past few years, which I'm happy to discuss, particularly ayahuasca, which I'm not sure if you know what that is, but um, I've come to accept my total unknowing of everything and the and the spirit of the universe. And like I feel connected to the spirit of the universe in a way that I never had before. And so I don't really know what anything is, but I know that there I know that our perspective is limited by three by the three D by the by three dimensions and that's that's not just it that there's certainly something beyond this I don't I couldn't tell you what that is <laughs> but um, but yeah <laughs> so would you say would you say you're a spiritual person but not necessarily religious exactly I would say I'm a, yes yes a spiritual person I believe that there's so much more beyond what we experience I simply don't know what that is and I don't have a name for it and I'm not devoted to that in any practice or um cultural sense so going back to that that striving you know that through mm-hmm. your teenage years and that that and into your uh, university years that striving that success like working hard trying to be the best that's yeah. that'll be a familiar story to a lot of people that's listening there's a lot of high achievers that listen to this mm-hmm. and the common theme is always that uh, unraveling or trying to figure out exactly what you said. Why am I doing this? Why am I working so hard? I don't feel ne- you know fulfilled necessarily by just this constant striving. So mm-hmm. you said it was. Uh, it took you a while to figure that out. What was the process of that journey? <laughs> I'll try to condense. Or is it ongoing? <laughs> uh, you know, it's well, it's always ongoing. To be honest, I don't think that we ever quite find it. Even if you feel completely impassioned by what you're doing, I think we're always led by this this desire to seek more, right? Or at least the, maybe the people who are listening to this show can relate to that. Like, there's always a striving, a yearning for more, whatever that means. Um, more of yourself, more of the universe. Uh, for me, going back to just that point in my life. It came to, so high school and college, I just worked really hard. I took classes and was positioning myself for a career that would have sounded very good on paper. I was about, I was about, after graduating from college, Georgetown, um, I was about one step away from walking into the doors of the Georgetown Law School and going to law. I had studied for the test. I took the test. I did all of that. And Something deep inside of me said, no, you can't do this. Uh, You will hate yourself. You will be successful because you're good at, you know, you're a good writer and you're good at arguing and you can talk your way through most things and, you know, you'll be a fine lawyer. But you yourself will be miserable despite no matter how much money that you make. So there was a greater part of me that knew that that would be a horrible decision for me. But so, okay, take that. That happened. Now, having removed myself from the system, so to speak, having removed myself from that upward trajectory of like accomplishing, 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 meeting external demand, meeting external demand, in absence of that, I had nothing to hold me. My entire life had been conditioned to just meet external demands, crush it, hit my marks, and then go on to the next thing. And then now without loss, 
like, well, there's nothing there in front of you. You have to decide. So what is your why? What do you want to do? And I never really, I never confronted that question in a serious way. So there's a moment of, a moment of fear there. Oh, fear, utter, utter terror and just total depression. I mean, that summer when I was 22 years old, when I graduated from, from, from college, from Georgetown, I had my first serious bout of depression, like just a sense of hopelessness and and utter despair. And it sounds, you know, I can laugh at myself now having gone through that and also knowing just like how privileged of a position that is to be in and, you know, but without getting into that conversation, because that's a whole other conversation, just based on what I had known of life, I was truly depressed and feeling very hopeless. And I ended up taking, um, I ended up taking a job at a, at a, at a talent agency, which was, uh, which was a great job. If you wanted to do that sort of thing, it would have, if I'm not sure if you, if you're aware of the show entourage, but it's akin to, um, the, the assistant of, of the agent whose name I'm now completely forgetting. Of course, the Jeremy (laughs) Piven character, uh, being the assistant to the agent. So I was the assistant to an agent. It wasn't as intense of a setting because it was in the, the literary department. So I was a assistant to a book agent and that was great. That was great. That was great as far as having a cool job is concerned, but I didn't, I felt just as hopeless while I was in it and kind of, and that kind of, and very lost. Those years were the, my lost years from 22 until 26. I was just floating along, uh, hopeless and lost. And I came to an impasse when I was about 25, 24, 2024, where I just, okay, this is enough. I'm going to make a bold decision for myself, Nathan. And this is the decision that actually set me up for why I'm talking to you now in this very roundabout way. But I said, I can't do this anymore. I need to do something bold and ambitious and completely out there. And I need to make a stand for myself. So I decided to screw my entire history, my past, all the things that had led up until this moment and decided to go to acting school. Wow. (laughs) Acting school. I had never acted once in my life. I, um, I thought that because of, because I like, I'm a, I can sweet talk my way through things. I can, you know, I have a presence about me, sure, in person. I thought that that was probably a good enough reason that I should become an actor. It was a ridiculous decision, but um, I did it. I went to, I, I, I trained on stage for a year and a half in conservatory in New York. And then after that, I moved to Los Angeles. And um, during all this time, I was actually incredibly miserable. I knew every day that what I was doing was the wrong decision. And so I woke up every day divided against myself, making choices further and further away from my center, but knowing that I had to invest, but simultaneously knowing that I had to invest in this discomfort in order to come to any sort of decision about anything. And we can talk about where that went, but I want to just pause and and give you a moment to catch up because there's a lot of story there. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, so did you get did the inspiration for acting come from your time at the talent agency? Was there something there you thought, "Hey, I like this business"? Yeah, yeah. You know what? The thing was like, I didn't want to be the one representing the talent. I wanted to be the talent. <laughs> and there's a little bit of ego there. There's a 
a lot of ego there, but it's also that um, there's that desire for freedom and doing things on my own terms, which is why I've ultimately, why, which is why I gravitated towards becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, that sense of freedom and like I want to define my future. I don't want to be the one representing somebody's future. I want to be defining my own, and I want things to be on my terms. That that ethic was is deep has always been deeply ingrained in me, but um, it was just simply the wrong channel. It was expressed poorly at that time. I didn't even know what becoming an entrepreneur meant. So for me, that meant all right, I'm gonna be an I'm gonna try to treat being an artist professionally and. Every other profession sounded like there was no chance to ever make a career of it, like to actually make any money from it, even though writing was my real passion and I had played music in high school. Those both sounded like basically to poverty and acting was the only one in which I could somehow make something of it. I knew nothing of what I was talking about. This is just my line of thinking at the time. It proved to be incredibly inaccurate. But um, but yeah, that was that was being in that environment certainly added to uh, certainly aided my uh my decision making and where are your parents for all this so you're, you're going through that <laughs> tough period that, that kind of completely they, baffled really totally baffled. <laughs> are they worried are they trying to push you in a certain direction are they disappointed my mother is so my mother my mother always took uh, extreme responsibility in making sure that I did everything by the books. I mean, I'm her own, I'm an only child. Her and my father had a, didn't have a great marriage. My father battled with addictions right as I was born. Um, what kind of addictions? Uh, alcohol and and cocaine. He was a foreign exchange broker, and if you've ever seen The Wolf of Wall Street, that movie is a caricature of a lifestyle that he led in the wow. '80s. And he from London, and he he came from nothing, and he randomly found himself in fi in finance. He was literally like a secretary at a bank, a secretary, uh, a janitor at a bank, and then somehow got himself onto like <laughs> a, a suited job there and then found his way onto a desk and then just had a knack for it and long story short became a foreign exchange broker and was moved from London to New York to the New York office and lived the lifestyle of a banker in the 80s when that industry like just truly just totally exploded into ridiculousness did he have a push he did not have a Porsche. He had a, jag he had a few Jaguars wow. when he was in London, in London, but he wasted. So the thing is that he blew all of it, literally um, all of his savings. And he married my mother a year into moving to New York, uh, into America in, in, in New York. And my mom was nine years his junior and they had me immediately. And then he had to go to rehab for a long time. And she was, you know, she she cultivated what I'm assuming is it a very intense relationship with me because I was her everything at that point. And she got herself into this whirlwind of a relationship and then, you know, it went away and my dad had to go away to rehab and he came back and they worked at it for a, for a number of years, but ultimately it just didn't work. They got divorced when I was uh, a teenager and um, my mom, long story short, well, long story long, um, she, 
she just took it, like I became her life, and uh, you know I bet that that started when it was just her and me, and I was a little infant, and she was by herself as a young woman. You know, was my dad is in rehab and just totally confused as to how this all happened. So, I was her I was her baby boy. I was her responsibility, and she took great ends to make sure that I came out okay. So. She was extremely diligent about my schooling. That's why I treated it so seriously as from a young age. That's why I achieved at a high level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She was very happy about the idea of my becoming a lawyer. And then when I didn't do that, she was fine because I still had a corporate job, and you know she was okay with me figuring out what what I wanted to do. But then when I when I pulled all that away and I decided I was going to become an actor, I mean it was she thought I. She was concerned that I had lost my mind, and she was probably <laughs> right, but I would never have admitted that. Um, and uh, yeah, she was trying to intervene in every which way possible. Um, ultimately, I moved to Los Angeles as a way to distance myself from that, and you know, distance myself from myself. I was just making choices in which uh, it kind of didn't even self-sabotaging. I didn't even care what the outcome was. I was just so divided against myself that it almost didn't matter. And I would just wake up and be completely dejected and confused as to how I ended up this way or how I was doing this thing that made no sense based on my interests or my passions or what my life's purpose is. And, um, but yet still for whatever reason, making sabotaging choice after the next and, and continuing down that path. And also, you know, self-medicating with, uh, a lot of bullshit to, to, to just feel okay, which I'm happy to talk about as well. So you picked up a few of the addiction, addictive habits that your dad had maybe. Yeah. You know, and it got to this point when I was about 26 that I, 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 I looked at myself. I mean, it wasn't literally like I was looking at myself in the mirror, but I was, I was observing myself and I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty much turning into my dad only without any of the success that he experienced. So I'm <laughs> just becoming an addict and like, what the hell, you know, what the hell? And, um, I, uppers were my thing because as a, as a, being depressed, uh, being naturally, naturally registering at a lower level than most people for the most of my life, any sort of upper made me Poof, like like a light switch went on. It wasn't manic. It was just like, okay, now I'm ready to engage the world. And I hadn't experienced that up until that point because, well, because I think maybe I'm not, I'm, I am naturally depressed. And at that, up until a certain point, I didn't know how to actually work that to my advantage or to, or to naturally come to work with that, which I, I will, we'll talk about, uh, later on. But but yeah, so first so, so of my thing, so cocaine and um, not a ton because I wasn't, I, I was poor and I didn't have the money for it, so thank God, thank God. but um, prescription, variations of the same thing like Adderall and there's a, there's a, there's another drug called Vyvanse and I mean, I literally got a psychiatrist to write me prescriptions for it and I lied so that I could get prescriptions so that I could have that, so that I could just feel okay i mean not even okay it was because that was the only thing that would become exciting to me like the way that i felt on that stuff and that's it got to the point where i recognized all that and i recognized that that was the only fulfillment that i would ever have in my week um and that i hated everything i was doing i hated going on auditions i didn't want to become an actor <laughs> and i had uprooted my entire life to move to los angeles to pursue somebody else's dream certainly not mine but somebody i don't even know whose it was just an imagined dream it was like a, it was like a 
idea that I actually, I actually played out. And, um, and I came to, I came to the, I came to an impasse and there was, uh, I had a moment where I, I made a big declaration to myself, which kind of set me up for the next phase of my life, which I'm currently still in. So coming to LA was when you got clean of the drugs or it happened again after that? It, no, it, LA, I was living in LA for a, for about six months when I, when I, when I came to the tipping point, I got to LA and I was like, why am I here? And then six months in, I realized you can't, you have to stop. You can't become an, like, you don't want to become an actor. You don't want to live that lifestyle. This isn't your dream. This is some, this is a lot of people's dreams, but it's not yours. And you need to, you need to take control of your life here because it's, it's quickly spinning out of control. So you need to take control of your life. You need stop pursuing this false dream you need to get off you need to get off all the bullshit and you need to really look at yourself and figure out what it is that you want to do and that means that meant for me investing in the utter unknown <laughs> like investing in not having any response to that but being okay with not having an answer which i had never actually gotten to before up until that point i always tried to force an outcome or or just or or wallet in my despair or dress it up with you know with a prescription drug or whatnot and i got to the point where i said you're just going to okay so here's a day i was walking oh, this is the day i was walking it was so in, we're in april. la we're in la how old are you now 26 i am it's the spring it's about april i'm walking up my street uh, in Hollywood, which is for people who have any understanding of Los Angeles, is west of Hollywood, <laughs> obviously <laughs> west Hollywood, east of Beverly Hills. It's like a very glitzy, glammy part of town. Um, a lot of people in the entertainment business, especially people who are starting out, live in West Hollywood. So you're surrounded by it all the time. I'm walking up my street in West Hollywood. Uh, I passed by the house, I kid you not, F. Scott Fitzgerald was one of my favorite authors growing up, and I learned after having moved to the block, uh, and months later after having moved there, that he died in a house on the block. It was his wow. girlfriend's house, and he died on the house, and I was literally walking by the house, and I, I just stopped to consider it, and I had like this powerful sweep over me where I really just how out of tune I was with myself and um, like I felt just this I, it was a deep reverberation inside of me like that that was recognizing the fact that this crazy thing this crazy random fact of, of F. Scott Fitzgerald having died in this house literally to my left and he was my favorite author and I, I I found myself in touch with that younger self that I always identify with as a as a academic and um, as a literary buff and all that. And I said, okay, it's, 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 it's time to stop because you're so, you're so miserable that it's not like I had the, the active desire to want to kill myself in any way, but it was the recognition, it was the realization that I wouldn't want to be living for that much longer if I woke up every day and felt like this. So it's not like I wanted to kill myself. Not at all. It's, it's not a cry for help. It was just like life's so shitty right now. And you're acting with such reckless abandon and per 
purpose purposelessness that like, there's just no reason there, I can't imagine doing this forever. You, you it's going to have to change or else like this is just not worth it. So uh, I made a promise to myself that on that day I would quit all uh, all the drugs all of that lifestyle of like going out and pretending like I wanted to be part of this scene that I wasn't a part of. Um, I would stop going to auditions. I would stop self-medicating with all that stuff. I would stop self-loathing. I would stop feeling sorry for myself and I would only do things that I cared about. And I, and I alone would be the sole solution to all of my problems. So on that day, and the weeks moving ahead, I quit everything. I quit all the cl acting classes that I was in. I, I told my manager that I was not going to go to any more auditions. I just stopped responding. I pretty much just like turned my email off as far as I'm concerned. I stopped doing all of that. And um, I started writing fiction again, which is something that I only – like which is something that had nothing to do with my – uh, with a resume. It had nothing to do with what I thought I ought to be doing. It's just what I wanted to be doing. Uh, I started writing fiction and lo and behold, I started coaching. <clears throat> I started coaching in a serious way. One of my close friends to lose weight and master his diet. And it was in that coach. It was in that coaching relationship that I developed this, the, the, my method and framework of how I coach today, which for everybody who's listening is exactly why I'm on this show with Nathan because Nathan is one of my clients and we can talk about how how we operate and what the what what the process is but it was within that relationship with my friend Matt that I started coaching in a serious way up until that point I kind of dabbled uh, just like helped out here and there but it was those two events that I started coaching and I started writing fiction and I also started meditation as a way of fixing myself and um ever since ever since that time everything has changed and it's just been it's not always an upward trajectory there have been a lot of ups and downs along the way but um i discovered myself as a coach as an entrepreneur i've built you know i i'm a partner at another startup and i built my coaching company up and, and then it failed as the original iteration and now i've built it back up again and and um and yeah, I work with 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 other entrepreneurs, and I coach some of them to build their own businesses. And I work with a lot of in-demand individuals to learn how to master their diets, which really means learning how to master themselves. You know, we talk, Nathan, you and I talk a lot about just your life and thing and 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 healthy habits and practices. And we talk about the food, but not. Not so much. It's more about everything else, all your choices that surround the food. And, yeah, everything, um, yeah. everything yeah. influences it. So that's my trajectory, man. I know cool. I just talked a lot, but that's... Uh, no, I love it. I love, I love the flow of it. I just want to... I do want to zoom in just to that, that, that please, moment, please. The, the realization moment, because uh, that, that's something I hear a lot about in my own coaching is... Well, I mean, that's a scary time, right? Like when you, you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> you don't know where you're going. You're feeling like shit, you know, this um, substance abuse and making that jump. Well, some people never make that jump, right? Which is a tragedy, but to draw that line in the sand in that moment mm -hmm. and go, right, no, not anymore. Mm -hmm. I just want to focus a little bit more on a micro level on that. The days around that time, sure. what do they start to look like after that? <clears throat> 
you mentioned meditation as being a big yeah, thing, and that, yeah. that's a common theme with everyone I talk to. Yeah, it's you just know, slowing it, down and bringing some awareness. Slowing down. The, the the anchor for me, what really got me started, was just writing short stories. Um, for me, it was writing short stories because I, I've always had a mental block about writing, like an, a, an inner dialogue with myself since, I don't know, probably I was 12 years old, is you're going to be a novelist one day. And I've always had that 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 conversation with myself running through my head and in college, I had attempted, I wrote a novel for like my senior thesis and that was an amazing experience. But then afterwards, I was completely jammed up. I never could give myself an actual attempt at, at writing. And and um, when I finally just said, you know what, nothing really matters. Like, you're so low, it doesn't really matter what you do. So you might as well finally just do the things that you care about because you're already, you already know what the bottom feels like as far as how bad things can go and how how far, how removed from your own sense of um, meaning and, and inner drive and inner purpose are concerned. So you might as well do the things that you care about. So I started writing fiction and I found myself really going through, like writing stories like and completing them. And I was like, huh, maybe I can do something, like I can do something. So it was that. And then I started, then just through the beauty of the universe, my friend reached out to me and he asked me to start coaching him this is all within like three weeks, literally. Right. Um, he started as he started asking me to coach him, and from there, I, I had I had read the Four Hour Body and, and uh, the Four Hour the Four Hour Work Week from Tim Ferriss and the Four Hour Body years prior, but it was at that time that his podcast just started just came out. So I started listening to his podcast. This is all within like the same <laughs> like the same month. I started listening to his podcast. The idea of building out a, a business and being an entrepreneur was something I had never considered in my life, but it just like my brain just started exploding with all of these ideas. And then at that same time, I figured, well, I, oh, and Tim on this podcast would talk about one of the episodes, one of the first episodes, he was talking about meditation and transcendental meditation. And um, because I was just, my brain was so on fire all the time from listening to that and immersing myself in, in the creative writing and coaching my friend and my friend got really jazzed up about the idea. So he and I wanted to build out a business, the coaching business, and we eventually did. He was my first partner. Um, and so my brain was just exploding and I thought, yeah, why don't I try meditation too? Like that seems exactly in line with that inner desire to want to solve my own problems and calm my own mind because I'd always grown up an anxious person and I was around that environment with my my family and then with all the depression and all that stuff, it just sounded perfect. So I didn't have a thousand dollars to spend on going to a transcendental meditation class at the time, which is a four day class. Uh, you go for four days and you meet your guide and he gives you a mantra and then there's a group element involved. So there's an accountability piece that you have to show up and do it every day for the four days. I didn't have the thousand dollars, but I just knew that it, that I needed to do it. I don't really know how else to put it. I just had the intuition that I needed to do it. And I also knew that if I was going to treat it seriously, then I had to make the sacrifice. I had to invest in that experience. I, so I made it happen. I, got the money somehow. I probably put it on a credit card to be honest because I just like didn't even have a thousand dollars at the time. <laughs> um, and I did it and I've been doing it. I'm not religious, but I'm religious about my meditation practice and I've been doing it every day uh, since. 
So you start the the coaching business, which ultimately fails, right? The first business, is that what you said? Yep. So what were some of the learnings out of that, and how did you crawl back to to start again? Yeah, so the learnings from that was don't overstep, don't don't overreach. Always, always, don't overreach, and make sure that you have a career for yourself first, and I'll explain. So with the... with the first coaching business, it was my friend Matt, my first partner, and I wanted to build out a platform for health coaches and registered dietitians who are the most um, credentialed dietary specialists in the United States. They're, they have to go through the most schooling. They're called registered dietitians. We wanted to create a platform for registered dietitians to connect with individuals one-on-one and provide the sort of coaching that I provide you, Nathan, but but do it at a mass level in which we have an app and people are connecting through the app and the registered dietitians are using the app to find clients and then also to sell their services and we would take a small cut of that. And I still believe in the idea because registered dietitians as an industry don't make uh, don't make a lot of money at all and they are eager to to perform this sort of work, but there isn't one. Um, there isn't a massive platform that that has successfully accomplished this. So I believe in the idea, but we were just way in over our heads to make something like that actually happen. We invested in an app, and we ha- we actually have an app. If you go to the App Store and you download the Evolution Eat app, I think you can probably still get it. Um, and, but it, we just didn't know we didn't know what we were doing, and we didn't have the ability to scale something like that even if we were successful. So what I learned ultimately is uh, optimize your own situation. Like don't worry about getting other people jobs first. Make your make sure that you can do that job first. So uh, there was a turning point when I was we were about to get investment from this angel investor and it was about to be this pretty big deal cuz he was into the concept and that's a whole story, but he was um he was into the concept he was going to invest $100,000 into the company and I, uh, and then the whole deal fell apart and I was left with nothing again. And um, it was on that day that I decided, okay, I'm going to treat my own coaching practice seriously. I'm not going to work really hard to find other people's jobs. I'm going to make sure that I have my own business before I scale anything. First, I need to make sure that the house is in order and that I'm in charge of the house. And it was on that day that I started to treat my coaching practice really seriously. I had been coaching throughout that time, but the objective was to grow the company, not to grow my own client base, so to speak. So that was the big learning lesson from there. After that is really when things start to take off. And that was, um, that was a year and a half ago when I came to that impasse. And it feels like your real passion and purpose in your coaching is food, is uh, yeah. diet and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So how come? Why is that the focus for you? Why is that important? Yeah, so we're talking about a, an addictive personality, which I, which I, I think I've exhibited uh, or have explained that I've exhibited in the past. I grew up, uh, I grew up addicted to food, so just straight up addicted to food. I would never have thought about it that way, but as an only child, I had to, I had to create my sense of fun and play and creativity, and I did that a lot with food. I did that a lot with food and having an oversaturating mother who just wanted to like 
gift me with her love and <laughs> I was rewarded with everything with food. That was just like part of the experience. So I grew an, an unhealthy dependence on it and an emotional attachment to it. And I, again, I never would have thought about this until years later, like right now, as I, as, as I've now made this my job and I've developed this vernacular for it. But, um, yeah, I was, ad I was addicted to food and I, I overate, I overate, I overate and I, it became, it became something that I had an intense relationship with and that I always look forward to even at the, even at the expense of like forming relationships with people. And I would use it as a crutch to just be the loner who enjoyed hanging out with himself. Like I have a strange, um, I have a strange satisfaction even still with just like hanging out at home and doing my own thing and not needing really as a, as an extreme introvert, I just don't need to be around other people to fill me with energy. I, I can do that by myself and for a long time. And even still, I still battle with this now. Um, I would use food as part of that, as part of that, um, as a mechanism to fill that void or to, or to, or to depend on it to fill that void. Yeah. What was the trigger? What was the trigger to start eating? Um, from a young age. Yeah. I guess you know, I just loved, I guess innately I just loved food and because I, because I was give like it was, I think it was a reward loop where my, I would be rewarded with food for doing a good job at school or like, because my mother so loved me, she like wanted to make sure that I was well fed and she would just like make sure that I would eat and eat. And I loved it so much that I would continue to eat and eat and eat. And it became, it just became a very deeply ingrained habit loop where food became a reward for pretty much everything. Like hanging out with myself, the idea of fun or doing well on something or are you feeling lonely? Okay. Well, that's, that's the solution. It just became the answer to most things. And that was, uh, that was something that I experienced at a very young age and I had to, and I lived with from the most of my life. And I won't say that this was like debilitating in any way. I don't want to paint a, paint a false picture, but I grew up, you know, well overweight. They call it Husky here in the States. And, um, <laughs> and for my childhood and teen years, I was, I was, I was really overweight at different times more so than others. Um, but overweight and I experienced a, 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 a series of chronic, uh, inflammatory issues like asthma. I had a terrible asthma, terrible seasonal allergies, um, and really, really horrible stomach issues like very poor digestion always cramping um never a sense of relief as far as that concerned uh, very bad irregularity as far as you know going to the bathroom and we all know what that means so so just have like and, and thinking that that i guess was just my baseline like oh this is how it's going to be and then I, I i learned through my own self-education and my own i guess pursuit of uh of, right, so, so I, so, so through self-education, I learned that nutrition could actually influence all of this, that it wasn't, <clears throat> it wasn't just something that I had to live with, but that I could actually influence. And I became, once that notion became real and I could see the, not just see the results of me like thinning out, but 
feel the results, experience the results of like literally waking up and going to the bathroom on a regular basis and, and, and not cramp, not feeling up and just blocked up all the time and noticing myself not getting terrible, uh, a terrible cold during the winter, which would always happen because of, I wouldn't be as inflamed and my lungs wouldn't be as inflamed. Like noticing the fact that, that what I ate had such a holistic whole body effect on me. Um, and then not to mention like how I felt sometimes, like how I would feel, uh, that, that was, that was the big shift. And, um, that was a big shift. Yeah. You talk a lot in our coaching, you talk a lot about the relationship to food. What's mm-hmm. your relation? I'd never heard that phrase before, but you, you use it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, just, hey, what's your relationship with food? Let's bring some awareness to your relationship with food. What does that mean? What does that actually mean? Yeah, I think that I think that most people, uh, I think that we all have a relationship with food. We all have a relationship to everything that we use dep- or depend on in any way, shape, or form. We just don't think about it that way. Like you have a relationship yeah. You have a relationship with your bed, right? You wouldn't think of it that way, but it's true. Well, it's you have an a relationship. intimate one. Right, of course. You have a really, and food is, to be honest, thinking because we need to eat in order to live. It's And the way in which we uh, engage with it, it's actually, it's probably the most intimate relationship that you have with anything. I mean, think about it. You like handle it, you cook it, you dress it up, you put it in your mouth, you chew it, you feel great from it. Sometimes you don't feel great from it, but like, you know, it it fires off all these sensations. It literally feeds you. I mean, it's pretty damn, it passes through your body. It's really intimate unless, unless you have the craziest sex life, which I definitely want to hear about, then it's probably the most intimate thing that you do on a daily basis. You know, we have this relationship with it. And I think that all of, or most of us, um, aren't aware of that fact. And therefore we aren't aware of the way in which we misuse it or abuse it. And because it does have so much, so many stimulatory effects and, um, because we use it for, uh, to relieve stress and for a whole host of reasons that that go beyond its basic physiological purpose, which is just to energize us, that we have we have an unhealthy relationship with the thing. And so to think of it as a relationship that we have with food now gives us a whole new language and a whole new perspective with which to approach this. Because if we just think about it from, oh, which and this is what's pushed on us from culture and media and at large, Without that language, then we just think, oh, we're fat. I need to go on a diet to lose weight, right? And then it becomes this very, very uh, strenuous process in which you're not actually, you're trying to restrict. It's a sacrifice. You're giving something up. Exactly. You're giving something up. You have to restrict something, either food or your happiness or this, that, and the other. And it becomes a battle against yourself in which we're using food, which is the tool, to like, force this outcome, which is what? Lose weight. And we're missing the point, which is that it's an unhealthy relationship. It's an unhealth that that's just as much of an unhealthy relationship as overeating, for an example. It's just the opposite side. And so, again, if we start talking about it with this with the language that I've introduced here, I'm not going to pretend like I'm the first one to do it. I don't know. I'm sure that other people talk about it this way. I, I don't know anybody who does, but that's I'm sure that they do. But talking about it like that 
allows uh, it, it provides an, a level of awareness to it that I don't think most people ever actually inhabit. So that's a starting point. If you just think about this whole thing differently, now you can see why jamming a diet down, uh, jamming a diet into your lifestyle isn't really serving you because you're not actually addressing your relationship with food. You're just going to the other side, the more the, the other side of extreme. And you're thinking about results and outcomes, not process and lifestyle. And if you want to get this diet thing right for real, for like the rest of your life kind of real, then we need to think about this with the long term in mind. And we need to think about what food's place in our life and how we use it and what we depend on it for. And and when we have that understanding, then we can really start to address the issue, right? Because then we can really think we can strategically look at the situations in which we're not operating in accordance with our intentions and we are abusing it. And we can really focus on those versus just this, applying some blanket diet and pretending like that's going to solve all of our problems. We can I actually. Know, I know one thing you hate is lose 20 pounds in 30 days. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like. You know what? It may, it, it, I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to say that it's not empowering for somebody to do that. It is. It would be fucking awesome to lose like 20 pounds in 30 days or whatever the challenge is. I'm not suggesting that there's not something really cool and empowering about that. But what I am standing behind is that you're not actually learning anything. You, because after those 20 days or the, after those 30 days are over or however long it takes you to get to that defined outcome, what happens next? What happens next? The way, the only way in which you could force such a dramatic weight loss in such short time is through restricting yourself a lot, uncomfortably so, and likely over-exhausting yourself through exercise. And what you're learning to do is to only perform well under those extreme standards, which is unsustainable for an entire, certainly an entire and certainly well beyond the duration of that diet plan. So you're only learning, you're only teaching yourself how to be successful under unsustainable conditions, which is not learning at all. It's like cramming for a test. You might pass, you might, you might do really great on the test the next day, but if you, then if you're asked to actually recall anything a week or two weeks later, especially come finals time, you got to study all over again because you haven't remembered anything. Yeah, you, just crammed, you just crammed it down. And so why don't we stop this boom and bust up and down cycle and actually for once and for all approach this thing with the long term in mind, knowing that it will take longer to get to that desired outcome than if then if you were to go on a diet. But understanding that that is the process by which anybody in any discipline across any profession doing anything at all, any pursuit comes to actually master something and really try to master our diet, thinking about the food's relationship, our relationship to food and the way that we, uh, the way in which we incorporate it in our lives and focusing on the areas that it doesn't serve us, focusing on the areas that it does serve us, focusing on what we actually get out of it. And then starting from that point, it's going to take a long time because it's not trying to force the outcome, but if you hone in on that and you start to eat healthy foods and you really work at training out um, a new, new habits and cultivating an awareness and, again, cultivating this mindset about improve, doing good enough to get to just keep improving, not forcing anything but improving, what we fail to register is that 
over time, your body will naturally start to recalibrate and you will demand less food when you're feeding yourself with the really healthy ones that, 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 that spike your hormones in a great way. You start to lose weight slowly, you naturally become less and less hungry, and over time, you're gonna lose the weight. It's gonna be longer, but it will happen naturally, and that is for real. That is forever, and most importantly, you'll have learned how to incorporate all that into the, your daily life and the demands that are thrown your way. When I met you, it was my situation was quite desperate, to be honest, with eating. And was exactly that pattern, the yo-yo dieting. I'm not fat, but, you know, I don't feel healthy. I feel, like, overweight, and I feel, I felt, uh, like, out of control. And mm-hmm. we were at a coaching seminar together, and you were standing up, and the guy asked you, who is your target market? And you said, I work with high, what did you say, high-achieving professionals that are out of control with their eating. Mm-hmm. Something like that. And I was like, my ears pricked up fuck Mm -hmm. out of control with your eating that's me i'm out of control Mm -hmm. and then we started working together and the first thing you said is i want you to send me a photo of every single thing that you eat from now on and i was like oh sure no problem i can do that (laughs) that's easy and as i started trying to do it it was like fuck i'm I'm sitting here eating my third cheeseburger i don't want to send this photo to daniel this is fucking embarrassing Mm -hmm. and a couple of times I didn't, a lot of the time I did. But you started pointing out what my relationship to food was just by, it's annoying, right? You you were there at all times to stop me and make me think, why are you putting this food in your mouth right now? Why Mm -hmm. are you eating right now? And I, I just had no idea of the profound impact that would have just being in touch and being in communication, which is a phenomenal way of coaching, like having you there at all times throughout the day mm-hmm. when I'm eating and then going, Hey, stop. What's happening? What's going on? Talk to me. Like it's, I said to you a couple of times, this is annoying. You're annoying me. Like you're always, <laughs> always there. Like, can I just, yeah. can I just shove my mouth full of cookies and not have to <laughs> discuss right. the reason? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but my point is through that and, it took a long time. We've been working together four months and it's only just starting to click for me now, would you say? But it, it took a lot of bringing awareness to it and changing those patterns and mm-hmm. identifying, as you say, the relationship to food. For me, my life was characterized by a sugar addiction, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, a ridiculous schedule because of my work. And because of that, just being tired and fatigued and run down all the time. And how do you make yourself feel better when you run down? You just reach for good food, bread, mm. cookies, burgers, comfort food. And I had no idea that that's what I did, but you identified for me that when I'm really tired, that's my weak time. When in reality, what I need to do is go and sleep mm. and catch up on sleep. Yeah, yeah. And that was I wanna... a profound thing for me. Good, and you know what, I'm so grateful that you decided to really keep pushing on. We had we had a few moments of, of reckoning where it's like, are we going to commit to this or are we not going to commit to this? And I want to I want to talk about where you're at right now. But before before we do, I want to I want to point out two different things that you two 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 things that you mentioned. The first and foremost is why do I ask that you send me a photo of everything that you eat? Well, that could seem to an outsider, that could seem extreme and obsessive, and I and I agree. If we don't think of 
what the point of it is. And here's the reason. If you do have an unhealthy relationship with food, uh, taking a photo, stopping and taking a photo of everything that you eat for a sense of mindfulness where you are currently being mindless, right? So it forces you to be mindful about the thing on which in one way or another, you're likely being mindless about how you're actually engaging with food. But most importantly, you are letting me in to your experience, which is so uncomfortable and so vulnerable. So uncomfortable. <laughs> so vulnerable that that paradigm shift alone, that dynamic of introducing another person into your very, uh, as of then, very insular, very contained experience of I, Nathan, am eating this food and I'm using it because it makes me feel good or whatever, whatever, whatever. Like that is a very, very intimate, there's that word again, an insular experience. And disrupting that by introducing another person into it and letting me in, first of all, just from a habitual point of view, that is so different that if we train that day in, day in and day out and meal in and meal out, of course, you're going to start to do things differently just from a habitual sense. But if we actually go deeper than that, what we're really doing is letting somebody else have influence over your weakest moments and the hardest moments. And if you can let somebody in on that and be like, fuck, man, and I'm sorry for cursing if I'm not allowed to curse, but like, fuck yeah, damn you it. Kiss. Okay, fuck yeah. Like, fuck, man, this is what's happening to me right now and this sucks and I can't control myself and I can't stop, but I'm letting you know about that. And if you do that, over time, and you repeat that over time, all of a sudden, we can strip food's power over us. We can strip it from that. We can, we can disempower food's power over us by allowing somebody else in because now you can sense, now you can start to see yourself actually influencing the situation. You're letting me in. All of a sudden, this food thing, it's not this, it's not, it doesn't have a primal control over you. You can do something differently. And that little difference, that key variation of introducing, of introducing me into the experience is all you need to know that you actually can make a change and that you actually can solve that. You can change that habit. And again, so then, so that letting in, that, 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 that vulnerability, really digging deep into that vulnerability, letting me into it from a habit point of view, everything is different that way. And then from a vulnerability point of view, you're now exposing yourself at your weakest moment and all of a sudden you wreck and then you come to realize it's not so bad. It's not so bad letting me in. It's not so bad letting me in. Maybe this food thing isn't such, isn't inconquerable. Maybe I can come over it and from there, we grow from our weaknesses. You can only get strong from investing in your vulnerability, right? If we really want to get strong, you invest in the deepest, deepest weakness that you have. And from there, you build up. Otherwise, you're just nursing talents and you really successful nursing talents and doing all that. And that feels really good. But if you really want to build yourself up from the bottom, you have to invest in your weaknesses. And by introducing me into those weakest moments all the time, you're necessarily going to build yourself up. You're necessarily going to build yourself up. And that is a huge paradigm shift. And from there, you know, once you committed, Nathan, to that idea, and we, you know, we had, we had some, we had some heart to hearts and we had some long conversations of, am I ready to do this? And can I do this? And this and that. And I get it because what at first sounds easy, like, yeah, of course I'll take a photo of my food actually becomes this really deep work, right? When you have to face yourself at those moments at two in the morning and you're like, I'm, 
I just want fuck. I just want to eat and I just want to eat and I just want to eat. And you stop and you pause and you have to be mindful for a second. That's really hard and it really hurts and you can't help but go deep. And that's how we make real change. That's right. I mean, there's so many things to that. The, the one thing, like any addiction for me, the addiction happens behind closed doors. Yeah. So whereas like even my partner or people around me, they say, well, you don't eat that much. You eat pretty well. Well, mm-hmm. you didn't see the packet of fucking Oreos that I plowed down in bed, you know, yeah. at 10 a.m. this morning. Yeah. Um, and suddenly, like you said, you have to invite someone, i.e. you, into your world. And that's not a world that I want to share with anyone. That, that's It's shameful that I don't have control oh, yeah. over that stuff. So that, that's the first thing. That, that was the... That was the hardest part. Yeah, nobody but, has a bit. Nobody, I want. Yeah, nobody has a binging episode in front of anybody else. Never, right? Is, and it's ne- it could be never. alcohol, it could be right drugs, whatever. That's mm-hmm. you know, food especially. Um, somehow, food's more acceptable, right, than alcohol or drugs. But the second thing I want to say is, along with that, I, you you were very insistent about not being judgmental, so you never mm-hmm. said, "Hey." what the fuck are you doing eating a packet of Oreos at 11 in the morning? This is insane. You're, come on, pull yourself together. You just went, okay, that's cool. Eat Oreos, but what's going on? What, why, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you're very, very conscious of not being judgmental, and I think that's a huge, um, a huge, huge part of what you do. Yeah, of course, because you know what? Who the hell am I to judge what you're battling through right now? You know, like we all have our things, and – you are doing the bravest thing by inviting me in and you don't need me to tell you that eating Oreos is unhealthy. Like you definitely, you don't need me to do that. All you need right then is a partner and somebody to share this experience with. And that alone will naturally come to condition the way in which you may, maybe, maybe go about it the next time. Right. It's like, you don't need me to tell you what you already know. You just need somebody to be there with you and to show you that, okay, like we're doing this and you don't have to hide. You don't have to feel shameful. You don't have to hide this by introducing it to me. Maybe we can actually think about, does this make sense? Does this serve you? Do you actually really want this? What are you looking for? Why would you be scarfing down Oreos at that time? Right. And what, what you picked up on before and what, what has been a theme of our, of our coaching is like, well, <clears throat> What are you looking looking to get out of it? Energy, like displacing boredom at late at night, getting some energy out of it. Couldn't we couldn't we get that same end goal by just going to bed, by just sleeping more, right? By feeling better. And then how do you feel in the morning? Isn't it isn't that clean feeling even better than how it feels oh, when phenomenal. you're phenomenal. crushing the Oreos? Like at the late double at night? the double feeling, right? You don't it's, have the shitty hangover and you feel yeah. well rested. Yeah. So like Finding that same reward, right? Coming back to the habit loop of, uh, of a trigger uh, routine and the reward. The trigger is what triggers the habit. The routine is the way in which you go about satisfying the reward. And the reward is the, the big takeaway. So that reward of like energy or good feeling, like, like, like sensorial overload, you can get that just in a different – you can get the energy by just going to bed. So you don't need to stay up and eat just to do this thing, right? You, you, you said like a crucial thing to me, like you said that, that changed it for me. You said, you're feeling like shit, you're tired. Is eating this food going to help? And the, the <laughs> five to 10 minutes after you finish that food, do you think you're going <laughs> to feel great and energized and all your problems are solved? Fuck no. <laughs> it's a completely flawed equation. Yeah. 
put the cookies yeah. down and go to bed. Well, you actually, I never even told you to do that. You, no. you then filled in those blanks. I figured you that said out. that. Yeah. 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 And then that's exactly right. That's exactly right, man. And again, it takes that sort of mindful diligence of us talking about all this stuff every day and showing up and sending the photos and figuring out what your personal patterns are and then diving into those those patterns and really working those moments and coming to these realizations. And it can't help but take time. It can't help but take time. It's a, it's, totally. it's, a, it's those, those vulnerable moments, like for me, sure. and 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 opening up to someone to say, "Hey, I feel like shit. I feel lonely. I um I feel like a failure right now. I don't yeah. want to tell anyone this. I don't tell anyone that. I just want to eat and be by myself." Um, and it took me a long time to open up to you just to say, "Hey, the reason I'm eating like this is because of these reasons." Um. Yeah, and, and you said another crucial thing you said to me. You said, well, what what are your choices here? Is going back to how it was going to help? Is that is that the answer? Or do we just keep plugging away at this every day, a little bit at a time, and, and you know, it's a no-brainer. It's the hard option, but it's the only option yeah. in my mind. Yeah, man. Well, I'm proud of you because you. Some, people, some people would say, yeah, but not right. You know, you're right, Daniel, but not right now. I can't do it right now. And... You know, that's as true as you tell yourself it's true, to be honest, that you're not ready for it. There's, the truth is there's never going to be an ideal time to really work hard at something like this. There never will be because life is so demanding, whether you have a demanding profession or not. The way in which our social lives are constructed with the Internet and everything coming at us at a million miles per hour from all angles all the time. Life is so demanding. There's never an, an ideal time to really work on this. So it's about accepting that this is important to you. It's of it's of of the most important things is at the top of your priority list. And then just diving diving in and letting the process speak for itself and then from there making decisions that either do or don't support that which you have as well like talk, talk would you like to you know would you like to talk about how you've kind of focused in on this year for yourself and what's most important to you yeah well i realized and i talked a lot about this in, in the the my 2016 sure. review podcast so i won't i won't go over it too much but just realizing that um for me, you can't have it all and be healthy. You can't do 15 different things and travel the world and um, run a business and work full-time <laughs> and manage a long-distance relationship and be the picture of health. The equation, it's a time issue. It's a numbers yeah. issue. Uh, <laughs> but realizing, hey, for me, my health, you know, I'm in my 30s. It's not going to get any better unless I, I make a conscious effort to, to stop here and refocus. So putting your body temple and your health at the the pillar of everything to me seems like a no-brainer. So I shuffled everything around, scaled down my business, and have really just gone into this year with the entire focus of just staying healthy and fit as the number one. Um, but hey, it took three months of failing effectively to realize that this is what I need to do. It needs to be a drastic change. Not failing, man. It's all, you're exactly where you need to be. You just, you invested in the process and then the process smacked you back and it basically <laughs> said, look, you need to respond. Like either you're going to respond and in order for you to actually do that in a way that's going to create lasting change for yourself, you're going to have to, you're going to have to prioritize and you're going to have to let a few things go. And that's, you know, you have, you have to go through 
everything that you went through in order to come to the realizations that you did. And I firmly believe that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, like anything. I'm, I'm so excited to have you on the show because you're just so enthusiastic and I think people can see what a crazy motherfucker you are and how passionate <laughs> you are about this. And like, it, it's so much fun working with you. So that's why I wanted to have you on the show. Um, it's, another, it's, a ple- it's a pleasure. I love that we get to talk in this format. It's just another opportunity for us to talk. So it's great. <laughs> you're, you're, you're an all-star and I really mean it when I say how proud I am of you because you do so much and I want everybody to know that I live in Santa Monica. You you live across the world and you're a pilot and you're traveling to and from. <laughs> like, like, like it just, it could have been so easy for you to say not right now or I can't do this. And it would have been totally reasonable, like very reasonable, logically reasonable. But something in you said, no, I, I have to do this and I'm going to do what it takes. And for that, for that, because of that, I know that you will be successful because you've already made the commitment to it. And that is fucking awesome. Thank you. you. Yeah, it feels good. And there's a lot of, um, there'll be a lot of pilots listening as well that will, will feel the pain of the travel, the fatigue, the back of the clock, the shitty meals on the airplane. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of high performing people that have the same problem. Maybe they don't travel a lot, but just are busy. Food takes a back seat. What, what, mm-hmm. What's kind of the three tips i know it's impossible to kind of distill mm-hmm. this down but just to get people going what's mm-hmm. the three things you would say will have the biggest impact up front if you're in those situations <clears throat> okay um so i would focus on having three healthy meals a day in which you're eating more than enough of the good stuff and so i guess that's number one and number two i'll define what the good stuff is the good stuff is high protein high quality fats, lots of veggies, basically mimicking what our evolutionary ancestors ate. So try to simplify like the whole thing. If if what's in front of you is in a ton of packaging and it has a lot of preservatives and there's they're likely not so hot. We want to reduce the amount of carbohydrates that we're having, which are typically found um, in a lot of refined sugary foods and Grain foods, so this is a this can be troubling for some when I say to eliminate grains from your diet. But the reason is because if we keep injecting ourselves with sugar, we become dependent on wanting more sugar. And what that means is that our blood sugar levels, <clears throat> in absence of sugar, dip and they dip very quickly. And when that happens, you have an energy lull and you physiologically feel t- hungry, even if you're not actually hungry. But the more that you train the idea of having sugar and sugar and sugar and needing sugar to feel energized, you're essentially just training your tra- your you're training yourself to be fat because in absence of intense exercise, sugar converts to fat. Fat alone does not convert to fat. Sugar converts to fat. So three healthy meals in which you are eating more than enough of the good stuff, like a lot of good, healthy foods, fat. You can eat fat and it doesn't make you fat. Uh, reduce the sugar. And then number three, man, if you just did those first two, you would change your life. I mean, that's pretty much, isn't that what we talk about? It is, and I think that the key is the relationship with the food as well. Yeah. Start oh, yeah. to identify that. Of, okay, yeah. If, if, if we were just talking about the nutrition, yeah. The, the number three is really start to look, look at your patterns and your behaviors. When are moments throughout the day or the week in particular in which you feel like food is in control of you? Whether it's, and it's, it might be like, 
for you, it might be a happy event. Like you might like just completely binging and going crazy on pizza and Sundays and this and that. But, but think about like in the moment itself, it might feel really happy and fun. But think about is that the behavior of somebody who is in control or somebody who's out of and really start to identify those moments, start to identify moments in which you depend on food to make you feel good or to displace boredom or loneliness, right? Some sort of misapplication of food. If food is meant to just energize us and keep us feeling strong and healthy, then think about the moments in which you are misunderstanding that or abusing that. And yeah, once you start to identify those patterns, then you can really start to do things to strategically either work against them or work around them. And that's a lot of what we do, you and I. The company is called Evolution Eat, and I'm so excited on your website. Your website is beautiful, by the way. Thank you. And you have a free video course on there, right? I do. It is is a seven-lesson, close to three-hour course in which I distill all of the major principles that I've learned and unpacked with my clients throughout the past years, five years, um, to come up with this whole approach. And it really distills it on a lesson by lesson basis, breaking down what I consider the major pillars of what we're working on here. This isn't just about the food. This is about your mindset, habits, our relationship to food, uh, how we emotionally relate to food, of course, the diet, the nutrition, our awareness, and then having a strategy in place. So it's really, it's seven lessons, what I call the seven pillars, and it's yours entirely free. All you need to do is sign up if you go to evolutioneat.com. And Nathan, what I'm also gonna do for your listeners is I'm gonna create a quick, um, a, 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 I have an ebook, and I'll create it specifically for your list so that they can just download that and they can get that immediately in their inbox. And I'll send that to you later tonight so you can wow, include it amazing. in the show notes. I really yeah. appreciate that, Daniel. I know so many people are going to be into this and just, yeah, I can't recommend you enough as the person to, to take them through this journey. Uh, that, that means a lot. And if anybody, if anybody signs up and they get my emails and you have questions, please, dear God, reach out to me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> as Nathan can attest, I live and breathe this. I want to make myself as available as, as humanly possible to so, you. So people can just hit reply on, on your uh, newsletter emails and, and email they you can back. Hit, that's it. Yeah. And if someone's yep. interested in, in the more detailed program that I'm doing, the one-on-one stuff, how would they go about that? Uh, just reach out to me directly, which is where they – so Daniel at EvolutionEat.com, D-A-N-I-E-L at evolution. EAT.com. You reach out to me and I will uh, just put Nathan's show in the subject or something like that, and that will help me. That will help me uh, organize. You are an amazing man. I'm just so grateful that you came into my life. It was serendipitous. It's been uh, challenging, <laughs> you know, but, but you, amazing. You, and I just uh, I appreciate created, it so much. You know what? You created this life <laughs> and you that opportunity. I didn't come up to you. You came up to me at the Rich Litvin event. I you did. came up to me. You made sure that we spoke when, when there were a lot of people who were interested in talking to me. You made sure that we actually sat down and spoke. You created this, and I'm grateful to you for making that happen, and I'm proud of you for making it happen. It's, it's, that, it's that determination from that first day when you reached out to me and said, hey, let's talk. And let's make sure that we talk. That's exactly what's living inside of you right now. It's why you're going to be successful. It's why you already are successful. It's why you've made such a tremendous, tremendous turnaround in the in the short time we've been working together. You are a gift, and you are great at what you do. And I love your podcast, and I love your audience. 
So there you have it, folks, my conversation with the wonderful, energetic Daniel Thomas. I hope you got something out of that. Uh, go and check out Daniel's website, evolutioneat.com. You'll get a lot out of it, and there's a lot of free content there, as Daniel said. Uh, as always, I would love it if you could share this around on Facebook, Twitter, give it a rating and a review on iTunes, and I will see you next week for episode number nine of The Nathan Seward Show. That was The Nathan Seward Show. Personal Conversations with powerful men.